The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. I'm Dan Roth, the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. Welcome to This Is Working, a show where we talk to people who have an outsized impact on our professional world. We're taking a new approach in our second season. We had to. The world brought about by COVID-19 changes rapidly. It's affecting everything, how we work, how we live. And given all of those changes, we knew we needed to make a change ourselves. So we're reformatting This Is Working. We now go live online for each of these interviews. You can join us for the live stream events by following the LinkedIn editors page on LinkedIn. And there you can make comments and ask questions that I might feature during the broadcast. A few days after each live show, you'll be able to listen again in this podcast form. We hope you'll find this is working to be enlightening and helpful. I'll be talking to more leaders and executives who are driving the world in the weeks to come. So stay tuned. This week, we spoke to Bill Gates. Bill Gates may be best known as the co-founder of Microsoft, but for the last 20 years, his major focus has been on the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The foundation aims to help all people lead healthy, productive lives. They focus on scientific approaches to some of the world's biggest health crises. It's a daunting mission in our current moment, but Gates has been preparing for this for years. In 2015, after the world narrowly avoided a global Ebola outbreak, Gates gave a TED talk focusing on the world's need to prepare for the next pandemic. He said, and this is a quote, we need to get going because time is not on our side. Five years later, we're in the midst of dealing with that next pandemic, COVID-19. We're seeing the fallout of not being better prepared. But Bill Gates isn't standing around and talking about why he was right. He's putting his money, his time, and his mental energy toward getting us through this. We're so thrilled to have him join us to answer questions about coronavirus and what lies beyond. Here's my conversation with Bill. So where are you right now? Are you, are you at home? I'm up in Seattle, and I'm mostly doing Teams meetings. You know, that, that product group has gotten a lot of feedback from me. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't been traveling. It's utterly different than uh, my routine used to be. Right. Well, we are a few weeks into this now, in the U.S. at least, and I'm curious how you think things are going in terms of making it through the pandemic. Are the lockdowns working from your point of view? Are we doing enough? Do we need to be doing more? You are famously an optimist. Where are you right now? Well, this scenario is a nightmare that I was worried about. Um, I not only did the TED Talk, I did the Shattuck Lecture, I wrote for the New England Journal of Medicine about the innovations that we should invest in so that we could respond quickly. And the speed of response to get diagnostics, to get drugs, to get a vaccine make all the difference because this is exponential growth. Now, some countries took and did testing very quickly. In general, countries have these PCR machines. And so all you needed was a little bit of special thing that could run a coronavirus-specific test there. The U.S. unfortunately let a level of infections come in uh, in February uh, that meant that we couldn't be like uh, Taiwan or South Korea in terms of catching it early and never having a large number of cases. So now you know, we've had to do very drastic measures to get the infection rate down, you know, to get off of that exponential curve that some communities are still in, start to see it level. And by the end of this month, the places that started early, if they've done a very good job 
will actually see that plateau still at much too high a level to open back up. You, you'll need another probably four weeks before the number of cases in absolute is so small that you'll be able to watch and contain those, particularly if you've changed the testing regime to really prioritize the important surveillance. Do you think that states understand this? Do you get a sense, and this is a question that comes in from Greg Tapper, why do you think some states have been significantly slower in mandating the shelter-in-place orders? Should this be a shelter-in-place order that's coming from the federal government, or are you okay with how we are handling in the U.S. the the shelter-in-place rules? Well, it's a mistake not to have the entire country take these extreme measures. It's understandable that people find this shocking. They're not used to the exponential growth of a respiratory transmitted virus. They haven't spent time, you know, looking like uh, the model that I showed in the TED Talk where you had 30 million deaths and $3 trillion of economic damage just from that one event if you weren't uh, prepared for it. So it takes time to get used to, but once somebody educates you about hey, you're going to shut down. It's just a question of whether you do it after your cases have grown or or before they've grown. You know, parts of the country have low enough cases that they can, you know, have way less deaths per person uh, than the other other parts if they act very, very soon. The only exception to that would be if, if we stop people moving inside the country altogether, and then each piece could have its own policies. But as long as we're allowing movement. We're all in this together. Yeah. So either you have to do the shutdowns or you have to have transportation bans in place. Um, do you think that there is a there has been some good news on the virus front? No, no, no way. Excuse me. Some good news on the vaccine front. No obvious no vaccine yet. But I know that you had a, um, uh, a vaccine that you're backing uh, through Inovia, I believe is now in production or where are we with that? What's, what, what, what is happening that makes you feel like there might be a, a vaccine in the works? Yeah, so the foundation, you know, this is my second career in infectious disease that probably lots of LinkedIn members haven't spent much time on these issues. It's actually surprisingly hard to make a vaccine. Typically it takes five years. We have a TB vaccine trial, which was going to be an eight-year trial, but now interrupted by this epidemic. In order to make the vaccine and make sure it's safe and make sure it works, in this case, it has to work very well in old people. Uh, People like Fauci and myself are saying probably 18 months. It could be slightly less than that or slightly longer. There's about 100 efforts in the world, of which about uh, 8 to 10 are very promising. And we have to back all of these. Uh, About four of them are based on a new approach, which is a RNA, DNA, and that's like CureVac, Moderna, BioNTech, Inovio. All of these are people funded by the Gates Foundation because we were going to use that platform to make vaccines for things like malaria. And we've always known that investing in this both directly and through a group we created called CEPI uh, was, would get the world to be more ready for the pandemic. So the, uh, the Moderna vaccine went into phase one three weeks ago. And the other RNA DNAs will go in the next month into that phase. But sadly, even going full speed and with the right indemnification, taking a little bit of risk on side effects, 
and building the manufacturing in parallel and backing all the leading companies to build manufacturing, not even knowing which one will prove to be safe and efficacious. Even doing all of that, you still get to this 18 months, which is unfortunate because until you've got that vaccine widely used, life will still be uh, not back to normal. You know, we can open up in certain ways, uh, hopefully in the United States, you know, by early June, if things go well, but it won't be, you know, where you're doing large public gatherings or even filling up a restaurant. It'll be semi-normal until that vaccine is out there in billions of doses. So a semi-normal economy for 18 months. How do you see the economy changing? Have you thought about what this means for how we work together, how we how we go to restaurants, how we congregate? Have you started playing that out? What do you think it looks like? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a memo about that because society is going to have to look at all of its activities and say which ones are really beneficial and which ones create a risk of a rebound. And how are we minimizing rebounds by doing aggressive testing, aggressive quarantine of those who test positive or even just have symptoms and contact tracing, where you know we have examples from China, South Korea, and many others, Singapore, Hong Kong, who have done these things quite well. You know, China's not having substantial rebound and yet they have some very tough policies with masks and temperature. I do think that things like running factories, doing construction, going back to school, uh, those things can be done. Whether or not large gatherings like a sport event, you know, the risk-reward ratio will be uh, positive in that time period. I'm doubtful Hmm. uh, that some things, you know, because the economic benefit they create relative to the disease risk may make them not uh, appropriate. And for the economy, we've done a lot of things to the economy here. I mean, it's necessary, but it's it's very radical. You know, we've we've cut off the supply of goods, but we've also created, you know, a, a drop in wealth, an increase in uncertainty, and a sense that should I go out, you know, will people want to go and travel? Will they want to go to restaurants? Will they even think, you know, buying a new home is an appropriate thing? So even once the government is saying, okay, these activities are okay, we can't expect the demand side to reemerge overnight. You know, people and they'll range from person to person, but there'll be a lot of caution that will damp uh, the demand in a in a pretty dramatic way. And and you are talking a lot about, a lot of this deals with how we deal with this in the developed world. In the developing world, you think this is going to be an even bigger problem. We have members who are joining uh, from all around the world in this chat. Again, this is uh, uh, this is working on LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us. We've got Hassan from Saudi Arabia, um, Henry from Zimbabwe. And there was a great question that was in your article from Ikfash Jahan from Bangladesh, who said, look, staying at home simply isn't an option for many of us in poor countries. How can people maintain social distancing in a six by six foot square home and the consequent economic crisis might be handled by rich countries, but we can't. How will we fight hunger issues? So really important question. What do you think in there? Well, it's a super good point. You can't simply take what the successful rich countries have done 
and map those onto a developing country. You know, rich countries, people have lots of living space so they can distance. They've got internet. The food supply requires a very small part of the workforce uh, that can be special cased. And it's not like, you know, Bangladesh is a, is a great example. And so they won't be able to use this uh, quarantine approach that uh, has been the primary tactic in the rich world. For the entire world, you know, my big focus, our foundation has shifted to accelerating not only the vaccine, but also therapeutics, you know, so that if, if we could find drugs, which can be antivirals or immune suppressant or antibodies, there's actually multiple classes, that could come more rapidly. You know, in four to six months, the therapeutics could reduce uh, the death rate a lot. And that would apply in Bangladesh as well. Hmm. But what social distancing looks like in places like India, Bangladesh, it won't be as effective. And, and there you really could cause people to have a lack of food. Uh, you could cause you know, social unrest in a very deep way if you're being unrealistic about the basic needs that people have. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. I want to uh, make sure that we get some of the questions coming in from the stream. Adam Rosenbaum says, moving into the future, what improvements are needed in supply chain uh, logistics and vendor risk management? whether physical or virtual, to prevent uh, floundering in the face of a pandemic. So does this change how we uh, think about building goods or moving goods around the world? Well, my belief is that this time we will be serious about uh, being ready for the next time. And that would mean that we would have gotten the diagnostic scale up super dramatically even within the first month. And we would be able to find therapeutics you know, way faster and we'd be able to develop a vaccine in probably half the time it'll take because we didn't invest in front of this. So I don't think once we get through this one that the world will need to think of, okay, pandemics are going to be coming again and again. And so let's redesign supply chain. This should be a singular event where the tools we build would mean that you can catch it before it would ever get to the scale, this global tragic scale that where the biggest price will be in the, in the developing countries, uh, that should be avoidable. 
And what do you say? This is a uh, uh, we talk about the impact this is having on a global stage, but for a lot of people, this is a very this is having a very personal impact, not just on lives lost, but also on jobs lost. There are many people who have been furloughed or have lost their jobs, and they're not sure whether they will actually be able to get any jobs back. This is a question coming in from uh, Taringa, who says, "Hi, Mr. Gates. I know a lot of people panicked about their jobs. What what do you think will happen with those lost jobs?" and uh, what do you think the business and small? What do you think the big businesses and small businesses should do during that time? That last question came from uh, Sunny uh, Sunny Nian. Well, we have this period of the you know extreme lockdown, you know, which hopefully will only be you know ten weeks or slightly more, and there the economic activity is greatly reduced. Then we have the period of opening up, and then when we have uh, the magic vaccine, we go back to normal. Some industries, you know, like uh, travel, tourism, uh, restaurants, the demand, even if the government's comfortable with those things, will still be less. And so that's why, you know, unemployment insurance, these loans to small business, you know, looking at the areas like delivery where there's increased workers' need and, you know, trying to make it easy for people to make those transitions, even if they'll go back when that demand is recreated. You know, the government is called on here to step up. The government did not do its duty uh, to prepare for this well in advance, but now people are focused on it and we can see different countries responding in different ways. The scale of the response is completely unprecedented. I mean, you've never had, you know, 10% of GDP type responses and it's great that that's been done, but will it really reach the people in need? We're still you know, kind of designing this as we go. Sadly, this is another thing that, you know, students who have no internet access or, you know, a lot of the jobs that the lower income part of society do, this is very unfair in terms of how it impacts people who already uh, had had a lot less wealth. As we all learn to work from home and do distance, you mentioned that you're spending a lot of time on teams. A lot of us are doing using all kinds of systems to stay in touch with our colleagues. Does this change? And my kids are on, you know, Zoom classrooms every day. Does this change? Do you think the education, do we start, does it create a system where we are not showing up in offices anymore? Do you think this is, you know, you wrote the the, the road ahead uh, about how the internet was going to change everything. Is this another moment where suddenly how we operate and how we deal with each other changes because of it? Or do we move back and does it get more close to normal? Well, the we've been forced in an unnatural way to push things into the digital form. And I, there are a few things like business trips that I doubt will ever go back. I mean, they'll still be business trips, but, you know, less. In the case of high school, I think the social activity, you know, making friends, hanging out that you get by being there physically, that's totally irreplaceable. And so even though on a pure learning basis, if you have an internet connection and a device and you have a teacher who's really good at presenting the material and it's not a lab-based cast, yes, it's impressive how people are rising to the occasion and for a subset of students making that work. But I do think certainly for K through 12, we want to go back to having those kids together, you know, learning how to socialize, spending time with their friends. Uh, and I'm, I'm optimistic, partly because of the, you know, data about uh, young people in this, that we will get that back. But some other things, 
you know, like Microsoft had gone to do its shareholders meeting, not as an important thing, even before this, you know, now virtually every company is, and I doubt there'll be that many face-to-face -face shareholder meetings. Now everybody's got permission. Also the amount of innovation in the software that facilitates this thing so that you think, okay, what is a virtual courtroom? What is a virtual legislature? You know, how do you create the logic? And in some ways, you can create something that's actually more efficient and better than what was there before. Well, that is a very optimistic look at where things could go and how it could uh, get better. Bill, thank you so much for spending your time with us here today. It's been really terrific. We are going to take this uh, entire interview. It will live on on the LinkedIn editors page. So if you want to, if you want to come back later and watch the whole thing and take notes and see the comments, they're all there. Uh, Bill, thank you again. Look forward to your next article and posts. And uh, thanks for everything you're doing. Good to talk to you. That was Bill Gates. Thanks to everyone who joined us for the live session and who contributed insightful questions and comments. We were excited to have such a lively conversation on how we get through this singular moment in time. And we look forward to keeping it going. You can join us over on LinkedIn using the hashtag, this is working. And please follow me and to get more news and insights, follow our main LinkedIn page, which you can find by searching for LinkedIn editors. If you found this podcast helpful, take a moment to subscribe to This Is Working on Apple Podcasts and rate us. It helps new listeners find the show. This Is Working is a production of LinkedIn. The podcast was produced by Sarah Storm with support from Stephen Valdivia and Michaela Greer. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriondo is head of original video and audio. Dave Pond is our technical director. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. We'll make it through this. See you next week.